0: We'll hear argument first today in case 06989 Hall Street Associates versus Mattel, Inc. Mr. Phillips.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In this case, two very sophisticated parties agreed to arbitrate an ongoing dispute that was pending in litigation for the United States District Court for the District of Oregon. Their agreement states plainly that after an arbitration award is issued, the District Court — and this is it, PEDAP 16A — Quote, shall vacate, modify, or correct any award where the arbitrator's conclusions of law are erroneous. Ultimately, what this court must decide is whether there is anything in either the Federal Arbitration Act or any other federal law that renders this non adhesive, unambiguous contract agreement unenforceable.
2: Mr. Phillips, would, would you say the same thing if the agreement provided for a de novo review in the district court?
1: I would be more concerned about identifying a standard of review for the district court than identifying a standard for modifying uh, the arbitration award pursuant to the agreement. So I, I think that's a different issue. I think that's closer to dealing with a judicial function than this is, which is simply implementing the, the intent of the parties as to what the standards ought to be for uh, enforcing the judicial award. that
2: would be – I'm um, assuming that the parties wrote that – standard into their contract so to the extent you're relying on party autonomy why couldn't the parties elect whatever standard of review they wish
1: mr ginsburg i recognize that there is a limit to party autonomy i think there ought to be a very strong preference for party autonomy and i'm not saying that if i were here and i had an agreement by which de novo review was the standard i wouldn't defend that Autonomy. All I'm saying is that I recognize that there are limitations on autonomy that recognize the functions of the, of the judiciary, but that limitation isn't remotely well. It's complicated in this particular.
3: What are the functions of the judiciary? What about a, a, an agreement, uh, arbitration agreement that the district court can find facts de novo?
1: I, I, that that one I I think worries me less. Uh, for, because it doesn't—it doesn't suggest. I mean, it just says that we will leave to the to the district to the district court the findings, and essentially renders the arbitration agreement. A- I
3: suppose it's a a, com- a complex matter of monitoring emissions of or- looking at water quality and the arbitrator has to sit by the river for a month, the district judge has to go down and sit by the river for a month?
1: But again, the parties under those circumstances seems to me are perfectly free to decide whether they want those issues to be decided conclusively by the arbitrator or to have them adjudicated at the end of the day by the federal court. And so if they they choose to go through the arbitral process and then still say, nevertheless, that's non-binding and that the district court is free to evaluate that on a de novo record, that seems to me doesn't, in fact, implicate the judicial function in quite the same way that the standard of review does.
4: Indeed, in uh, are there not such things as non-binding arbitrations? Precisely. Which, Justice in effect,
1: Laird. say that uh, when we're done,
4: the district court will do it as an original matter.
1: Right. And, and in, that con- see, in that context, you're not raising the same problem that you're referring to, Justice Ginsburg, because you're not saying anything about the standard of review. You're just simply saying that the court ought to decide the legal issue. Now, I do think that when you, when the parties agree that it's a question of law, that the question of law is for the district court to decide. My assumption is that the district court, in fact, will use de novo review, but the parties are not dictating that. Well, that's a matter the, that's left. I'm sorry. Doesn't,
5: doesn't the arbitration over. agreement in this case set out a standard of review? It's a, on findings of fact they have to be supported by substantial evidence.
1: They do, but that issue, that, that standard of review is not a, a, at issue in this particular case. The only question here is whether or not there's been an error of law committed and uh, obviously the District Court found that there was a clear error of law commit. Indeed, the dissenting ju- judge below said it was an irrational decision on the law. Mr. But they, Phillip- were both,
2: they were both in this agreement, both the substantial evidence rule and the standard of review of legal error. So are you saying that you you we don't have to deal with that question. You're not going to defend it because the, the standard was dual. They, am I not right about what? No,
1: the, there, there are clearly two different standards that are set out in the arbitration agreement, and, the, and one of them is substantial evidence. But when the matter went from the arbitrator to the district court, there was no issue presented by Hall Street on the question of substantial evidence, we didn't challenge any of the factual findings by the, district, by the arbitrator and therefore that issue is not presented. I'm not saying I wouldn't defend it. All I'm saying is I don't have to defend it in this particular case because the only issue here is whether there's been an error of law. But in the you district. have
3: to give us a standard. You said, you, you mentioned, oh, functions of the district court. I, I, I don't know the standard you're proposing that will allow us to draw the line and, and to put cases on one side of the line or the other. You said, well, we can't interfere with the functions of the court. I don't quite understand that.
1: Well, the, the problem there, and again, I, I think this is largely a fanciful concern because I don't think serious parties who are engaged in arbitration agreements are likely to come up with standards that are completely alien to the judicial process. And, indeed, there's no empirical evidence to support that. Certainly, respondent didn't cite anything. There, Miki didn't cite anything like that. But to be sure, Judge Kaczynski, in his, in his concurring opinion in the original panel decision in Kiasera, said he would have a very different reaction to this case if we were talking about the district court either flipping a coin or looking at the entrails of dead birds as the basis for decision. And and our basic point is we're not embracing that extreme approach. I mean, we recognize party autonomy as a significant part of what Section 2 of the Arbitration Act is all about, and we think that ought to drive the analysis of this court significantly, particularly in how you interpret Section 9. Mr.
0: Phillips, uh, why do you care? If if this is not enforceable under the Federal Arbitration Act, which gives you kind of a shortcut, the District Court must confirm it if certain criteria are met, I assume you have a normally enforceable contract that the District Court can enforce uh, just like it enforces any other contract.
1: Uh, uh, That's absolutely true, particularly in this context, Mr. Chief Justice, because here we have a situation where we were before the District Court. This arrangement came out of the mediation process. The District Court reviewed it blessed it, sent it to the arbitrator, so it came lose. right back.
0: So, so you oh. should lose. No, no, oh, I should lose. No, no. The, the, <laughs> we should conclude that you don't fall within the Federal Arbitration Act, and it's not a big deal because you can bring it, you can in, have the contract enforced. The District Court, as far as I can tell, wants to enforce this agreement, um, presumably will enforce it as a contract, so you don't need the Federal Arbitration Act. So why should we fly in the face of its plain language to accommodate your interests?
1: Because the problem here is not what what happens in, in the instance of Section 9 not applying, that we're suddenly we, we go back to square one and start over. That might be true in a different case, but in this particular case, we started in Federal District Court. We brought this action as a, as a contract. Is there a basis?
0: Action. Well, the Federal Arbitration Act doesn't provide jurisdiction anyway, so right. I assume you have a basis for being in Federal Court Your Honor. in the first place. So you're just enforcing a contract in diversity and Federal And that's part. exactly
1: what we would ask this Court to be doing here.
0: No, we're asking us to pr- bring it under the Federal Arbitration Act and say that the District Court must confirm it, re- despite the fact that you have changed the standards under Section nine through eleven.
1: Uh, the, I, Mr. Chief Justice, you flipped it around. <laughs> Remember, we lost in the arbitration, we won in the District Court. The District Court was prepared to enforce the agreement. Right. Both both the underlying lease agreement and the arbitration agreement. It was the Court of Appeals that said, no, you can't do that. You can't enter a final judgment in this case. And the reason is point, because of the Federal Arbitration But my point is act.
0: that if you have an ordinary contract action, the district court will, because your contract provides a particular standard of review,
1: enforce that. Right? Right. No, that's, that's absolutely true. But that's exactly what we're asking you to do here. On that point,
6: the reason I think you're — this is a little chaos here is because you said — Your question is phrased as the FAA preclude enforcement of your arbitration agreement. And you're going to say, we answer that question, no, it doesn't preclude it. Right. It doesn't require it. It doesn't preclude it. But then would we have to go back and say what is the source? There has to be some source of law that authorizes this contractual agreement. And there could be two possible sources. And my question here is, Is it clear that, in fact, either of these two sources does? The first source is state law. I gather the difficulty is that the State of Oregon has an Act, just like the Federal Arbitration Act, so we'd have to ask the Oregon courts, is this a legitimate contract under Oregon State law? The alternative source of law is the Federal Judge's case management authority. And there we have a statute which clearly gives the judge some kind of authority, but not for your case, because your case exceeds the jurisdictional amount. Therefore, in the absence of that statute, is there inherent authority in a district judge? Now, I don't know the answer to either of those questions. But my temptation is to say they're open questions, and they'd have to be argued on remand, which makes this case the case of the century, I guess, in a certain respect. It's quite a difficult case.
1: I was just looking for the case of the day, Your Honor, actually. All right, well, in certain area, I
6: overstate, but uh, the, the — uh, is there any light you can shed on those two questions, or is there some third possible source of law?
1: Well, well we know that — I, th- I think the answer to that is that, the, that Section 2 of the Federal Arbitration Act, which this Court has recognized repeatedly, has a very strong preference for enforcing uh, the agreement of the parties, uh, is, is a part of the answer to that. And you couple that with the fact that Justice Story, back as, late, as early as 1814, said that as a matter of common law, that the notion of restricted arbitration is a matter completely left to the parties. So I think that there are general common law standards. Now, you know, could Oregon law have gone the other way on that? Maybe. I think it would be an interesting preemption question. But the, the respondent has never argued that this is unenforceable as a matter of Oregon law. So I don't think that issue is in this case. As a matter of case management, if the Court wants to defer to anything, then it ought to defer to the District Court's own assessment. That this, that this agreement should be utterly enforceable. Have you ever
6: argued that this is a matter governed by Oregon law and it is enforceable?
1: Right. They never have argued, argued that. you argued that? That it is enforceable? You, yeah,
6: under yeah. Oregon law. Have you ever argued Oregon law? No, we've never no, argued well, Oregon law. And it's law. not surprising they haven't argued that Oregon well, law Well, it. they have.
1: Oh, no, but they, they have, have, in
0: fact, own. on page 43 of their brief, They say that if you prevail, the parties would be left to a State law contract action to determine the enforceability of the
1: award. Right. But the State law contract action that they're talking about is precisely the State law contract action we brought in this case before the Federal District Court under diversity jurisdiction. And at the end of the day, what we're asking for is for the Court to enforce the District Judge's determination. No, their
0: citation is to an arbitration treatise. The contract they're referring to is the contract to arbitrate. And unless I'm mistaken, what you want is for the District Court to be able to enforce your agreement under the Federal Arbitration Act,
1: right? Because it falls squarely within the Federal Arbitration Act. Well, it doesn't
0: fall squarely within it because the Federal Arbitration Act sets different standards of review. And all I'm saying is I don't see what the big deal is because you should say, okay, don't use the Federal Arbitration Act, which gives you kind of an express remedy the District Court must confirm uh, use normal contract law and say to the District Court, well, you don't have the Federal Arbitration Act, you don't have to confirm it as a judgment, but we have a contract, it's perfectly valid, it sets a different standard of review, you should enforce it.
1: Right, but I think the answer to that is that is that if Congress had a choice as between those alternatives, Congress clearly in Section 9 made it absolutely indisputable that there's a simple way to enforce it, but it didn't suggest the alternative, which is that you relegate it to some kind of state law, completely complicated process of trying to get this uh, arbitration award enforced under those circumstances.
4: Excuse me, I'm I'm, I'm just not following this discussion. Uh, Does it assume that you can bring an action on the contract and just bypass the provision of the contract which says there will be arbitration? How can you do that? You 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 don't assert that you you can. No, I couldn't. No, we clearly can't do that. You clearly clearly can't do that. There. Right. So some somebody has to decide on this uh, arbitration provision.
1: Right, and I think Uh, the court, this court, is the court that's got to decide that at this point. I think that's the arbitration provision.
0: The arbitration agreement is just a contract, right? To be sure. Well, then I don't understand why it's not enforceable as a contract.
1: I don't think we disagree on that, Mr. Chief Justice. I think the well, I think if it's enforceable, right. I, I'm
0: obviously missing something here. If it's enforceable as a contract, what is the great benefit you get out of prevailing and saying this should be enforced under the Federal Arbitration Act? It's
1: well, not the benefit is simply the effect. efficiency that the Federal Arbitration Act is trying to promote. I mean, to be sure, there, 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 you know, there, there could potentially be any number of routes you might want to identify. The clearest one is where the parties don't care about what happens on the back end, where they say, once you get your, you have your, you get your arbitration award and then you go off and, and you do Section 9 and we don't have any agreement on that. And that one's easy and that's the most efficient. Then the question is, what do you do in a situation where the parties don't agree with that, where they want the district court What do you do when you it?
0: contract an arbitration agreement that's not covered by Section 2? It's not concerning a maritime transaction or involving uh, uh, commerce.
1: Those are regulated by state law. Okay. Purely by state law. But this is a contract that falls but, with but the, the this, But
4: this one isn't. Judgment. And and, and if, if if we say that it that uh, that you lose <laughs> under the uh, Federal Arbitration Act, is it open to the state court to say, well, that's what the Federal Arbitration Act says, but we, we handle arbitration differently.
1: Well, that's sort of the core question, I think, that sort of comes out of I Southland. I think if you lose on the arbitration cases,
4: here, you got to lose on the arbitration and, and
1: in. I mean, I think that's what Southland. I mean, you don't have to admit that.
4: That's that's, that's
1: the logic out. of Southland.
0: Why I, in the world? Why is that the case? I mean, this doesn't purport to occupy the field of arbitration in the preempt state law. It provides that a, a very direct order. The District Court must confirm the arbitration award as a judgment right. if you fall within the criteria. And all I'm saying is they'll say, okay, I don't have to confirm it as a
1: See, I, I think the answer to the conundrum you've raised, Mr. Chief Justice, is that if you're not in Section 9, then you ought to be in Section 2, and there you should do precisely what the contract says, which is that you should... Vacate or or set aside the arbitration agreement unless uh, if there's an error in law.
0: I agree that you're in Section 2 and the state court can't invalidate your agreement under some special rule that applies only to arbitration. But you want to be under Section 9, and that says that the district court must confirm the arbitration
1: award if it meets certain standards. I, I don't need Section 9. All I need is Section 2, because if, because under our agreement, what we specifically say is that the District Court shall vacate, modify, or correct. We're looking for them to correct this award by saying that the right interpretation of this lease is that this is an applicable environmental law, and therefore the indemnification extends, and we are protected. But the only, basis you, the
0: only basis you have for getting them to correct the award is a different standard of review than the one provided in Section 10.
1: That's true. But that's, that seems to me that just makes my point, which is I don't need Section 9, Your Honor. All I need, all I need is an aggressive — is a, not even aggressive — a fair interpretation of Section 2 that says that the party's intent controls under these circumstances. It's
7: not that you don't need Section 9. You want to get rid of Section uh, 9 I, because Section 9 on its face seems to provide the opposite to what you're asking. Isn't that the problem?
1: Well, I don't know that that's the problem. I, uh, you're right. I don't want Section 9 to be controlling here, but I don't think it's meant to be controlling under these circumstances. I think what se- I mean—they're making the Section 9 argument. All well, I'm saying is that there's not a problem created. Why,
7: why isn't? I mean, the argument that it is meant to be controlling is an argument first for the plain What's language. What's the
1: "it"? There, I'm the sorry, Mr. Pardon me. When you say it's meant to be controlling, I, I don't. Section hope. Section no. Section 9. I'm
7: sorry. Uh, number one, the plain language of the statute. Number two. An argument that that plain language, uh, as, a, as a matter of historical fact, was deliberately chosen when Congress made a choice uh, between two different basic arbitration schemes, and they chose the arbitration scheme that, in effect, does not allow uh, the, the 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 kind of variation that you're talking about. So they say the language is plain; the intent behind the language is plain. It is restrictive, and you can't do that. What is your response, in effect, to the plain language construed in terms of the historical argument?
1: Yeah, well, the, answer, the plain language doesn't, doesn't say what happens if the parties reach a different agreement. The, the, the first
7: — Well, it may, not, it may not say it for the simple reason that it says unequivocally what should happen, and you are asking for a variation on what it unequivocally provides. That may be the reason it does not go into contingencies.
1: Well, I think, Well, first of all, it would seem to me less likely that that's true given the common law history that comes out of Justice Story's opinion, which said that restrictive arbitrations are All right, but you're, ag- you're
7: ignoring, and- when you say that, you're ignoring the development of arbitration in the period after Justice Story. And you are ignoring the argument that the other side makes that a deliberate choice was made between two generally understood arbitration, statutory arbitration schemes, and they, the, they chose the one uh, that is inconsistent with your position.
1: So, 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 me, there, are two, uh, there are two questions there, so let me try to answer both of your questions. The first one is what does the plain meaning of the statute says? The plain meaning of the statute which is a 1A of of the appendix of the petition, if the parties in their agreement agreed that a judgment of the Court shall be entered upon the award, we never agreed to that. So the, the plain language of Section 9 simply doesn't get you there. It, 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 Section 9 envisions how can, that this is then an, how can, this you, is an then how can you get
7: any award uh, uh, enforced, even subject to your term?
1: Because under Section 2, the parties have, have provided a mechanism for that by saying that the district court will correct an award if it's erroneous as a matter of then, law. Then,
7: then you have to grapple with the question whether, in fact, under Section 2, you can provide for confirmation in a manner consistent with the provision for confirmation under Section 9.
1: Right. But all I'm saying is that Section 9 doesn't apply in this particular context, and therefore it makes all the sense in the world to No, but you
7: simply, I, I don't, uh, maybe I'm missing something, but you seem to stand there and s- just say boldly, Section 9 doesn't apply. It doesn't apply. You've repeated that several times. And I, at least, don't know why it doesn't apply.
1: Well, I'll go back. I, I'll hopefully I can persuade you that, uh, by rereading the, the portion of, of the statute, but the first sentence of Section 9, which is Appendix 1, if the parties
4: Where where is it? This is
1: 1A of the appendix to the petition, Section 9. If the parties in their agreement have agreed that a judgment of the court shall be entered upon the award, Mm -hmm. these parties didn't agree that a judgment would be entered on the award. They agreed that a judgment would be entered on the basis of whether there was a a, a non-erroneous declaration of law by the arbitrator. Okay.
7: And what you are arguing is... At this point, even though we didn't agree within the meaning of the preamble to the first sentence, we still have a right to have the award confirmed and enforced because we agreed to it under Section 2. Both parties agreed to it under Section 2. And the question, I think, is when you argue in that fashion, do you have a right under Section 2 to provide for confirmation and enforcement under terms which are inconsistent with the provision in Section 9. And I think that's the, that's the well, question it, it, you've got to answer.
1: If you, if you want to make a, a judgment call and you think there's really a judgment you have to make is between Section 2 and Section 9, then it seems to me that all of the Court's decisions that recognize that the single most important objective of the Federal Arbitration Act is embodied in Section 2, which is to, to enforce the, 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 the intent of the parties the, the case is the way you should come out. The intent of the party that's being enforced in those myriad
7: cases is the intent of the parties to arbitrate. I don't believe any of those cases respond to the to the issue that we've got before us. And the issue we've got before us as you are now framing it is this if you do not have a provision within the meaning of the first sentence of Section nine for confirmation and enforcement. What do you do? But you have a different contractual provision and its terms are different from the enforcement terms under Section nine, can that contract be recognized? Do you have a right, in effect, to modify the the statute? Suter, That's what you've got to come to grips with. And, and it, well, I, I it think does I am coming to grips. With no, it. but it does not answer that question simply to say there are lots of cases saying that the intent of the parties to arbitrate should be
1: enforced. No, no, it's not the intent of the parties to arbitrate. It is every facet of the agreement is to be enforced consistent with the intent of the parties. Do
7: you have a case that says every facet of the agreement, no matter how inconsistent, arguably with other sections (laughs) of the
1: statute? No, you don't. No, of course not, That's why we've got this case here. No, to be sure. But the the bottom line here, and and, and I do want to answer the Illinois versus New York part of this, because I think that's a complete red herring in this case. But it still seems to me that if you think that there is an ambiguity with respect to Section 9, first you should resolve that ambiguity by construing it to to implement the party's intent, because that is the overriding objection of the FAA. And second, if you go to Section 10.
7: If we do that, we've we've got to dispose of the red herring, so you're going to
1: Okay, all right, let me answer the red herring, then, then, then I'll tell you what I think about Section 10. Okay. On the red herring, all all the — first of all, there's nothing in the legislative history that suggests that Congress made some kind of conscious choice between New York and and Illinois. They talk about the New York model. There's not a word in the legislative history about Illinois. So I don't think that's what the decision was. But even if that were the choice they made, that still doesn't go to the question of what do you do if the parties reach a different agreement. That is
4: indeed the issue. What we're we're arguing about here is whether 9 and 10 are simply default rules. That apply where the parties have not otherwise specified. That's and that's arguably what the New York law and the Illinois. I, I don't know that any of those cases cited by the other side involved cases where the Illinois rule or the New York rule was applied in the teeth of an arbitration agreement that said something differently.
1: No, none of the, none of those. I cases think both the, like the, the, the
4: Illinois rule and the New York rule were default rules. That's exactly right. And you're arguing it. that this is a default rule. Correct.
2: Doesn't read like one. 10 and 11 don't read like Well, I think the important part about Section 10 to keep in mind is, is their
1: argument also is predicated on the assumption that Section 10 exhaustively lists all of the grounds for modifying an arbitration vacating an arbitration award. And it is absolutely clear from this Court's decision, both in Wilco and in W.R. Grace, that the list in Section 10 is not an exclusive. What, well, what else
2: is there besides the manifest whatever
1: it is? <laughs> manifest disregard of the law and the and public policy. W.R. Grace says you can't enforce any contract. That Mr. Phillips, on the policy.
5: question whether it's just a default rule or, or a self-executing definition of what's permissible, supposing the agreement between the parties provided that the, the judgment put by the Court must be entered in six months rather than a year, and it would be vitiated if it was entered after that, would that trump the statute?
1: Uh, I— I think, yeah, I think it probably would, because I I don't think Congress meant for it to be, I don't think Congress intended for this to be, not subject to change. I mean, you know, the, the question in all of these provisions is, are there some components of the FAA that are meant to be mandatory, and are there others that are all subject to change? And I think that one strikes me, at least, as most likely subject to change, Justice Stevens. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Phillips.
0: Mr.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Sections 9, 10, and 11 of the Federal Arbitration Act provide the exclusive grounds on which a Court can vacate, modify, correct an arbitration award under the FAA. Those grounds do not include legal error. What petitioner wants is to graft on an additional ground to that statute and say, oh, 10A5, On any other ground that the parties agree to.
4: What do you do about the fact that our opinions uh, have said that there's another ground under 10, which is manifest miscarriage of justice? That's not listed there.
8: Your Honor, manifest disregard is Section 10A4, exceeding the power. It is not mere legal error. And it's manifest disregard of the agreement. Section 10 goes to structural errors, structural problems, corruption, fraud exceeding the power. And manifest regard is in the statute, and it's not mere legal error. Why,
4: why did we go, go to the trouble of expressing it differently? Why say Section 4?
8: It was required in Wilco because there were two different questions there. There was a provision under the Securities Act that said customers couldn't waive certain rights. And the Court said there, well, we all know that the Security Act generally would apply to arbitration. Of course, if an arbitrator didn't apply to the Security Act, that would be manifest disregard, exceeding their power. That they could not do. But what the Wilco Court held was the customer, if they went to arbitration, was also waiving judicial review of the arbitrator's interpretation of the law. And that was the distinction in Wilco. And that's why manifest disregard is in the statute. It's 10A4, and it's that type of error. It is not beyond the statute. And that's what Congress meant to do.
2: What about Com- public policy? That was the other one, Mr. Phillips. Yes.
8: Public policy um, would often be covered under Section 2. Section 2 allows any arbitration contract to be voided under any generally applicable um state contract law. So that clearly would apply. A lot of that would capture all of the public policy. But public policy is used in different ways. The um, Grace Casey cites is a labor case. And there have been different developments of arbitration under the labor statute. But what public policy has come to mean in that line of cases is where there's another federal statute that is violated by the arbitration. And there you have another source of law. If there's a later enacted federal statute that was a congressional intent to trump the Arbitration Act. That's another matter.
4: Well, and, why aren't what ought to happen in situations like this? Suppose we agree with you and we say, oh, yeah, both of the parties agreed as part of this contract. Well, I don't want to let these, these arbitrators decide the law. If they get the law wrong, we, we, want, we want the courts to decide the law. That's the deal. And then you're going to say, oh, that portion of the contract is no good.
8: You can't in that situation. Is
4: there su- no, no no such thing as as, as uh, failure of the contract for for uh, uh, misunderstanding of the law?
8: That would be a common law action, as the chief justice was referring to to simply enforce an award. But Section Nine created a streamlined approach for enforcement of arbitration awards when Congress in 1925. said. you, you think that-
4: you think the state can affo- can enforce an arbitration award? that would not be enforceable under the FAA?
8: Under Section 9. I hate to use the words broadly FAA, because here's the situation. You can have arbitration awards they are clearly covered under Section 2. But they're not covered under Section 9. Section 9 is a streamlined procedure for enforcement of arbitration awards under the FAA. When Congress enacted the statute, they said, you know, we're going to give a streamlined approach. If you want to go quickly from award to judgment, you can go right into court and here's section nine that and you could agree to this you have to agree to use section nine you have to agree to this confirmation you come in and that court must enforce that award confirm that award unless sections 10 or 11 meant and that's exactly what congress did that is that not happens
0: outside of the faa that happens all the time they're called consent decrees the party agree agrees to particular provisions, and they submit it to the judge and said, we want you to write two words, so ordered, at the bottom of this, and then it becomes a judgment. You don't have to worry about the Arbitration Act. It's a contract.
8: There are a couple of differences, I'd also say, with the consent decree from the Section 9 enforcement of the Ward, Your Honor. Here, of course, Congress spoke to it and clearly set up a framework for Section 9, 10, and 11, how you could have this streamlined, efficient, final way to get a judgment. That was the purpose of the FAA. So you don't have that in the consent um, decree situation, and you would not have that in a common law contract action. Also, of course, in that consent decree situation, Courts maintain their um, equitable so, I guess authority. A, same
0: question for you that I had for your friend: mm-hmm. Why do you care? I mean, if you're saying, "Look, you can enforce this as a as a state law contract," you know, it's not streamlined. The judge doesn't have to do it, but you know, this judge wants to do it, and and uh, he's going to enforce it as a state law uh, contract. What what do you gain?
8: Well, we gain a little of what we tried to get through arbitration: finality, the, the, the cessation of the time and cost that this litigation has arisen. We are, um, prevail under the ruling of the, um, court that recognized the exclusivity of sections 9, 10, and 11, and that would end the litigation. That is certainly of a very what, great interest to What do you respond. do
7: with, what do you say to Mr. Phillips's argument that within the meaning of the, the, the first sentence of section 9, you don't have any agreement at all, and therefore you have no right to enforce anything? I take it that's not the position you took below, and that's yeah. not the position you're taking here, but how do you answer him?
8: That's really a repackaging of petitioner severability. Argument yeah. below. Yeah. There was an agreement to confirm. It's just whether or not, if the um, it becomes legally impossible for the other condition to occur, the legal review can't occur because it's contrary to the statute. What happens? And the court of appeals here addressed that issue, applied Oregon law, and rejected it. Petitioner filed a rehearing and bank petition on that and did not bring it to this court on cert.
4: Okay. Look okay. at uh, assume. Uh, So we we agree with you that this is a a a quick and dirty way to get uh, uh, arbitration agreements enforced. If you want to bring it within 9 and 10, and if you don't, you're free not to. You can go to the state courts. Why can't he still go to the state courts? You say this is going to terminate the litigation. Is is this going to be re judicata on anything? All all it's going to say is the federal courts have no jurisdiction over this. It's not it's not under 9 and 10. You're going to run off to state court. Your Honor. You're going to is, protract the litigation rather than uh, bring it to a quick end.
8: Your Honor, this is under Section 9. The only way it would not be under Section 9 is if they had won on the severability argument. I, I,
4: don't, I don't understand that.
2: We it, sought. Ms. Kaufman, T- can we back up a bit? Because this agreement had an unusual genesis. This was a big case, and the judge kept right in the court a piece of it. And then he and the parties agreed that another piece of it would best be resolved in arbitration. So the judge was an equal participation in that effort. All three parties wanted to get a particular issue resolved through an arbitrator rather than the Court itself. And I doubt very much whether the judge would have been at all interested in that scheme if he thought he were doing an idle thing, that the parties, having agreed to just what the judge thought was a nice way to resolve this issue, would then find themselves out of federal court and have to bring some kind of suit in state court. It doesn't seem to fit this scenario. TWO RESPONSES,
8: AT LEAST TO THAT, YOUR HONOR. Um, THEN THE PARTY SHOULD HAVE ASKED THE COURT TO APPOINT A SPECIAL MASTER. THAT MAINTAINS UNDER THE AUTHORITY OF THE DISTRICT COURT JUDGE. THAT'S NOT WHAT HAPPENED HERE. Um, AND uh, THAT'S IMPORTANT. WHAT IS BEFORE THE COURT HERE IS A SECTION 9 ACTION TO CONFIRM THE JUDGMENT. AND THAT'S WHAT COMES TO THE COURT ON.
0: Um, YOU DON'T HAVE TO GO BACK TO STATE COURT. YOU HAVE DIVERSITY. YOU'RE IN FEDERAL
6: COURT NO MATTER WHAT, RIGHT?
8: YES, YOUR HONOR. That's right. That's
6: why. That just what you said is actually what's worrying me about the case, because what Justice Ginsburg said makes me think that there are, could be situations, a lot of situations, where federal judges do want to peel a case off. And you say send it to a master. Maybe some would lend themselves to a master. Maybe some wouldn't. I have no idea. And are we going to have to hold in this case whether a judge or when a judge, a federal judge, does or does not have authority? to do such a thing. That's why I say I was actually thinking, in case of the century, it's going to take a hundred years to finish. But the, 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 the fact is, there are those issues there. Once we say Section 9 or doesn't apply, then you have to say, if we suppose we were to say it's just State law. Well, suppose the State doesn't allow enforcement of this kind of contracts. Then we have the question of the the authority of the uh, uh, inherent authority, not statutory, of a Federal district judge to peel off bits of cases and decide them in different ways. I don't know the answer to those questions, but I think they're quite important. So what do I do?
8: Well, first of all, Your Honor, if it comes to a question about the particular facts of this case involving the scenario that Justice Ginsburg put forth of the very unusual situation of a federal district court being there, we would, of course, to dismiss the um, writ as improvidently granted. That is, has no broader um, implication, I think. Oh, no, because
6: there's a holding in the whole Ninth Circuit, which accounts for a large percent of the country. But right. that's the judge can't do this. And, and that's quite a significant holding in that in that uh, circuit, and we ought to review that. Yeah,
8: that would be the question, Your Honor. If, when faced with um, something that a judge wants to peel it off, you have to look at what tools a federal judge has been given. Magistrate judges widely used for all types of picking juries, discovery, special masters. Those are the tools that have been given to federal judges.
2: Why not arbitration? Use, why in, not use Rule 16 pretrial procedure? And the parties and the judge can work out what they think is the most efficient way to resolve this controversy, so they decided at the pre trial conference that they 're going to build into this arrangement, one issue that they 're going to peel off to go to an arbitrator, but the judge is going to retain control through the legal error.
8: The arbitrator is what introduces these different elements because that 's a private judge. Chosen by the parties, paid by the parties, doesn't have life tenure. It's a very different animal than what Congress
2: did in the Federal Arbitration it, it, Act. That's a uh, strange argument in this respect. You are arguing that this non Article Three person have more control rather than less control, that if the judge controlled this arbitrator somehow that would violate Article Three. But if the judge has no control and and is essentially a little more than a rubber stamp for what the non Article Three person does, then that's all right. This is the because sense it, of that doesn't come across to me. It's because it's a matter of contract
8: law, Justice
2: Ginsburg. The parties
8: agree to an arbitration here in a contract, and the arbitrator's award speaks for the parties. It is their agreement. That's what an arbitration award is. And that's why this streamlined process under Sections 9 to transfer that award, that contractual agreement.
3: But but the question is whether or not that streamlined process is the only process. It seems to me that if the purpose of the Arbitration Act is to uh, promote confidence in the arbitration process, uh, that if parties agree to have the double assurance that the arbitrator hasn't made some uh, strange ruling of law, that that's quite consistent with the whole purposes of arbitration.
8: Well, Your Honor, we're not suggesting that it's the only means to get an award enforced. But the, if you're doing the Section 9 route, the grounds in the statute are the only grounds on which that can be done. And the policy about whether or not those transaction costs, when parties want further review or an arbitration, is shifted but, to the courts as one Congress made.
3: But, you you're, have- but you're asking us to interpret the statute. and let, it, let us assume that it's a plausible interpretation to interpret the statute as the petitioner would. You know, and under Section 8, the parties can use the authority of the court to libel a ship uh, the, the court is uh, is extending its authority to a, 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 to use very intrusive means, and to say that the parties can't ensure, if they choose, uh, to have review for correct errors of law when this, to correct errors of law when the ship has been seized. It seems to me to promote the whole purposes of the act.
8: But your honor, um, I think that's where we get to between when we're talking about section two and the purposes that the parties control how the arbitration progresses. Then we come to the entry of the judgment by a court, and that's what Congress controls. And the grounds in 10 and 11 cannot be perceived as default rules. There are many places in the Federal arbitration. Well, we're where arguing default. about
3: that textually. I'm saying there's nothing inconsistent with the petitioner's position and the basic policies of the act. You talk about finality, streamline, and so forth. But if the parties have more confidence in the arbitration process, by ensuring this added level of review it seems to me quite consistent with the purposes of the act
8: well two things your honor if they want to do that then they don't choose section nine and they don't agree, uh, include an agreement for Section 9. And then they have what Chief Justice Roberts was talking about, a so state can contract on action. I that for
5: just a minute? You're assuming, and the Chief Justice's line of questioning was assuming that there's an adequate state remedy available for enforcing this contract. But the whole premise of the statute at the time it was enacted was that there was not a state remedy because there was a bias against arbitration. And this was thought to be the sole remedy for arbitration at the time the statute was enacted.
8: Your Honor, that actually brings me to the red herring. and I'd like to address the history, because I think that what happens in petitioners' reply brief, there's some confusion between common law causes of action to enforce an arbitration award as a contract and actions under statutes. Um, some of the commentators confuse that also. There was an opportunity to have judicial review of law through a, a contract enforcement case, although there was a clear statement requirement So there there are going to be cases that talk about they're not under the statute. Then when you look at cases under the statute, you have to differentiate between the cases under the New York model statutes, where you will not find that, and cases under the Illinois statute, where you will because
2: they allow judicial review. Are Are there any such states left today that are using the Illinois model
8: I believe not, Your Honor. We explained in one of our footnotes that that came into disfavor. But I wanted to address Justice Scalia's point about the legislative history. There is no case that we have found that says, notwithstanding those statutory grounds, you can contract beyond them. But we do have not only the New York um, cases, but also in um, footnote 8, I believe, on page 30, several other statutes that have statutory grounds that repeatedly say, these are the statutory grounds that is separate from the common law action where you could have a whole jury trial. But
4: the, but, the, but the old Illinois and the old New York rules, you don't have any cases which say, which establish that those rules were not just default rules, but but you but you were not allowed to depart from them. You we think
8: them. the language in those cases. You don't, you
4: don't have any case that holds that.
8: The cases say things like, on the statutory grounds. I mean, they do say it. Do they go the next step and say, by the yeah. way, we're not going to let you do anything you, else? You,
4: you don't do have this. any case that holds that? No,
8: no. It, there's none on the other side Is, either, there, is there
2: a possibility that the reason that the language in the statute is as it is, when was the Federal Arbitration Act? What, you, 1925. And it was still abroad in the land, considerable distrust of arbitrators. Judges said arbitrators are stepping on our turf. And so they would be naturally resistant to let the arbitrator go ahead and have the most minimal review in court. Maybe the Act was written the way it was to say, if the parties want to go to arbitration, courts, you stay out of it.
8: If you choose that, yes, Your Honor, and even one more step, but we will tell the courts to stay out of it only if you agree that you're going to come um, under for a confirmation. It's still let the parties have the review through common law if they want. That's absolutely correct, Your Honor. I think it's that additional step, though, that puts the whole picture together. And I do want to emphasize there is appellate arbitration that takes care of all of the policy current concerns about whether or not. Would,
3: would, you, would you agree that what we hold in this case applies to suits in admiralty? We you don't go to state court under Section 8?
8: That's a difficult question, Your Honor. Um, I have looked at many of the old, some of the arbitration get, did, cases did come up from Admiralty, and I think the answer is if it is an action under Section 9 to confirm, it must be confirmed unless there is vacant or modification or correction under 10 or 11. Those are exclusive. Well, at grounds. this point,
3: you don't have the state court fallback for your argument. I I can't see why it isn't, as I just repeat my earlier point, quite consistent with encouraging confidence in in admiralty arbitration to allow district courts to review the – it, it, rulings on a matter of law if the parties so choose.
8: I think that question, though, perhaps goes to more or not whether the um, Section 9 is the exclusive means for an enforcing an award. And it, it isn't. So perhaps there is some other means that is beyond my expertise. Oh, if there,
6: if there is, then, then let's think. Suppose that in the middle of the trial the parties say, Judge, this is so complicated factually. We have a way that we can get an agreed statement of facts. They walk out the door they have a friend who has a sign called arbitrator and they come away from that friend with an agreed statement of facts which they agree to submit to the judge to apply the law now there's nothing wrong with that i imagine
8: well that sign would have to be changed it would have to we, no crazy. i'm sorry
6: I, i'm not even <laughs> going to tell the judge how i find this i go to a crystal ball i go to any way i want i will come in with an agreed statement of facts and is there anything if we have that agreed statement of facts that would stop the judge from saying, I take this agreed statement of facts. There's a difference about how the law applies to it. I will resolve this case.
8: There are a couple of things. It's not an arbitration yeah. award. No, I mean, no arbitration. I'm just saying, well,
6: I'll ask you the next question. Mm-hmm. I take the answer to the first question, is there's nothing wrong with that.
8: I have to this say the Court would not be bound by that. It's not a right. mandatory standard. I, I'm like sorry, I, I thought
6: that, that if, in fact, parties come in with an agreed statement of facts in a case, I've never seen a situation where the judge couldn't say, fine, I agree, that's the, st- that's the, f- the judge would say, I'm sorry, even though you agree, I insist that you go to trial and sure, and, uh, you can't? I think,
0: I think sure, it would the be the a part agree, Here's our stipulation. We agree that he's a citizen of Pennsylvania and you're a citizen right,
6: of Right, so they're public policy limitations. Right, and it's
8: collusion. Well, it goes to our argument. You right, Is there anything wrong an here?
6: So my question, basically, obviously, is, is there anything wrong in this case if they'd come in with an agreed statement of facts?
8: I think it would have depended on what the court did with it, so long as it was not binding on the federal court because you can't buy an injunction. You cannot stipulate to the erroneous law. The Article 3 judge maintains yeah, right. that authority.
6: I'm trying to get to my question. I'm not asking it very well. What they agreed to is it's an agreed statement of facts subject to Section 9 standards, and Section 9 and 10.
8: That's difficult because it's. What I'm I'm driving at, whether
6: I've asked it well or not, is how is this any different from coming in with an agreed statement of facts?
8: Because this is an arbitration award. It is a contractual agreement where the award um, gives, um, imposes a legal obligation on someone else, and that award is going to be entered as a judgment of the court. May I ask this sort of
5: basic question? Forgetting the text for a minute, what policy reason can you think of? Why would Congress want to prohibit this particular form of agreement?
8: Congress wanted to give parties an option for a quick, simple, cost effective and final why way. Why would
5: they want to prohibit a, an option that takes a little bit longer?
8: Because that would be a different action where you would have to look to state contract law, contract law defenses, whether they're state arbitration laws, it 's a different animal. They were looking at the animal of an arbitration agreement and a streamlined method to have that enforced, and that's what Sections 9, 10, and 11 do. And so I, I have to, Your uh-huh. answer
0: would be part uh, the point Justice Stevens brought up earlier. There was this state hostility to enforcing arbitration agreements at all. Mm-hmm. And so what the Federal Arbitration Act says, all right, in these narrow circumstances where the parties have gr- agreed, subject to this narrow standard of review, you have to enforce it. But that doesn't mean we're going to override the state law across the board.
8: It gives the parties the option for choosing that, and if you choose that, you have to do what why Congress would said. Why do not want to
5: prevent the parties from choosing the option they chose in this case? I don't think that answer says why they'd want to do that. They
8: can choose another option, but they, you may have a full-blown trial about contract law and the award, and that would be no arbitration
5: with at all. That's right. But,
8: uh, um, I also I have just to don't speak. understand
5: why it, why it makes any sense at all to say this type of uh, arbitration agreement is, is invalid. And, uh, well, your Honor, yeah, we're not saying it's invalid. I would add that in admiralty, you don't have the
3: backup of state law.
8: Okay. We're not saying it's invalid, Your Honor. We're saying that there's an entitlement to a confirmation of the ward unless the grounds of Tegna 11 are there. And petitioner wants to graft on this thing that says, or on any other ground, the parties agree on. There's no limit to that, Your Honor. There's nothing for no, formally fair. The, the, the
7: question is still here. Why should there be a limit if the parties themselves agree because if they didn't come in under arbitration and they simply came in under a contract or what, whatever in the, the causes of action might be in a diversity case, the Court would have to be dealing with these issues anyway. You'd, you'd be, be under a different cause of action,
8: Justice Souter. You'd be me? under state contract law. Here you'd have to develop a federal common law of when you took a Section 9, you started reviewing it for um, error, are we really going to allow de novo review and vacature when it's harmless? There's a whole body of federal law that has developed about harmless error to address those kinds of issues. This would that's be that's fem- true in any
7: diversity case.
8: But your honor, this would be under the Federal Arbitration Act without any guidance from Congress, contrary to the grounds they put forward, and they have no limit. Okay, as- why
7: didn't Congress give any guidance? One suggestion that the Chief Justice made, and it had played through my mind, is maybe the, the what seemed to be the plain language limits in Section 9 represent not necessarily a kind of policy choice in a perfect world, but a political policy choice. Maybe that was the term, as you, as you read Section 9, maybe that was the term upon which the Act could be passed. Was, we will, in effect, we will say, look, you've you got to enforce these contracts, arbitration contracts, but you don't have to go one step further. Maybe that was the political deal. Is there any indication that that was the case and that's the explanation for this limit? With
8: all respect, I think not. I think that the um, Section 2 and 3, the enforcement of the arbitration agreement, is about the private parties determining the process. But when you get to the entry of a judgment by a court on the award, what Congress did, said, we're going to give you an option to have an efficient, streamlined way for that also. And here it is, 9, 10, 11. Now, you still have something else, but you have to agree to this in your agreement. But if you agree to it, this is what you have. And I have to say, petitioner's argument is so broad, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, there were questions of fact in this. We were we were litigating under this agreement also in the district court, and we brought a question of fact to the district court. When the district court first sent this back to the arbitrator, it went through and basically told the arbitrator, you know, you haven't looked at these facts, you haven't looked at these facts, you haven't looked at these facts. I believe it's um PETAP 57A. And it sent it back to show the arbitrators' work. I mean, that it's is what courts can would get mired in under a common law development here to review according to what's. Has
6: that been a nightmare? Has it been the nightmare you suggest in labor arbitration? Because I think labor arbitration falls outside the act, doesn't it?
8: It does. Has that
6: turned into some kind of terrible nightmare where there are dozens of rules and uh, they have a long, uh, uh, complicated uh, labor set of Regulations on it? I don't think so. but has it.
8: Well, Your Honor, I, I'm not as familiar with that, perhaps as I should be. Back. Well, if we ago. run
6: that pretty well, why wouldn't you run this pretty well?
8: I think uh, they're given very
6: a backup. Give, looking at it as a default.
8: I think they're very different policies and a different well, then statutory then Let's, let's, framework take, let's take
2: this statute and let's take the circuits that have the rule, the opposite rule. That, in fact, the Ninth Circuit had the opposite rule uh, until rather recently. Mm-hmm. What has been the experience, I think the Fifth Circuit is on the other side? Yes. What has been the experience there?
8: There has not been widespread use of this provision. I think that our amici briefs really speak to this, Your Honor, because the difference would be a statement by the U.S. Supreme Court that says parties can now create whatever other grounds they want and go in through Section 9 in the streamlined process and are going to impose on Federal courts, not appellate arbitrators, on Federal courts, whatever grounds they want. De novo review of fact, um, no harmless error, perhaps create different appellate standards when it goes up. And I think that the amici really point out that that is so contrary to the finality and efficiencies that the animal of arbitration — I think a lot of
2: those horribles — Mr. Phillips would agree with you because he hesitated even on de novo, and I think he thought that — trying to control an appeal from the district court, that would be beyond, out of the ballpark.
8: I think it would create a hybrid animal that is not what the I, Arbitration I you, Act limited to do. limit it reasonably
4: by saying the parties can agree to anything. At, we would only have to say at least. The parties can at least agree to anything that the court would be able to do if this had been brought as an action in the court rather than initially as an, as an arbitration.
8: With all due respect Which means
4: the court would decide the questions of law.
8: With all due respect it, your honor that would be for congress to do not this court this is a statutory framework a statutory I, cause of action that I understand but vote. that
4: would be a limit you say, you say it's limitless it, it doesn't have to be limitless.
8: No but you're putting you are I think as this court itself has said you're breeding litigation from a statute whose whole point was to minimize and um, limit litigation. You're creating a new body of Federal common law that's really antithetical to the core purpose of the Arbitration Act. And I think that the, um, that overriding principle of Federal Arbitration Act should really um, motivate the Court to realize what Congress did and the exclusive grounds that they set
2: forth. But one problem that I have with your position is you say that the you should continue to prevail, although... That would be in violation of the party's agreement. Under the Ninth Circuit decision, you win. What the arbitrator says goes. And there isn't the review that the parties bargained for. That's a severability point that they lost on,
8: Your Honor. If they had petitioned for cert on severability and tried to say because the judicial review became legally impossible, the rest should have fallen, We'd be arguing a different case. They petitioned for rehearing and bank review on that and did not petition for cert on that. But that is answered by the severability ruling below.
3: Could the parties have an arbitration agreement in which they said if there are contested issues of law, either party may seek declaratory judgment? In court? In a federal court, under the declaratory judgment act.
8: I don't know if that would be an arbitration agreement. I'm not sure what the. My
3: hypothetical is it's in the arbitration agreement. If the arbitrator gets stuck on a difficult question of law, either party can seek declaratory relief, and the arbitration proceedings are held in abeyance pending that declaration.
8: I hesitate because it sounds like that may just be an advisory, opinion, and there might be an Article III problem with that. No, no.
3: There's the advisory. We've been through this. This is a real controversy, not an advisory opinion.
8: Okay. Then they can go and have a the reason you
3: hesitate is to answer yes. It might be inconsistent with your position.
8: No, I don't think so, Your Honor. I think that if they have a declaratory judgment, then they'll have a judgment. I don't know why they would ever go back to the arbitrator. That's what I'm not —
3: There are lots of other things for the arbitrator to do. He's got some specific issues of law that are contested.
8: I don't see how that is um, inconsistent with a party independently going for a declaratory judgment action. I don't think that's contrary to our position, Your Honor. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ms. Brinkman. Um, Mr. Phillips, you have five minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'll try to give you back some of that time before I'm done. You know, in my experience in evaluating cases like this, it seems to me that in some ways where you end up uh, depends in large measure on where you start. And You know, the parties fundamentally disagree about whether or not this is an agreement that should be, you know, who's got, who's got the burden? Do we have to show that this agreement is authorized by something or are we entitled to this, to have this agreement? And it's their burden to demonstrate clearly the Congress meant not to allow this to be enforced. And it seems to me clear that the answer to that is that it's their burden to find something specific in the Federal Arbitration Act or otherwise that precludes this. Section 9 doesn't get them there, because Section 9 is predicated always on an agreement of the parties in the first instance. And so that's not a basis for doing that. But even if you thought what Section do, What do
7: you say about uh, her argument that we are limited in considering your argument by the severability ruling that you didn't appeal?
1: I, I don't see how the severability ruling has any relevance to this particular problem, because what we're saying is we are entitled to enforce the — uh, the agreement of the parties with respect to exactly what the District Court has the authority to do. The fact that it, whether it's severable or not severable doesn't mean that we're not entitled to the enforcement of the agreement as written by the parties. Severability doesn't eliminate our right to have no, that part does, of the agreement. No, but it does
7: preclude, I mean, her, her, her answer is an answer to the argument that you were making in response to a question of mine earlier that, in fact, you don't have an agreement within the meaning of the the preamble portion of, of Section 9. She says you do because you have one after severance and you didn't appeal severability.
1: Right, but all I'm saying is that I think that puts the cart before the horse. Remember, severability only comes up after the Court of Appeals had decided that this provision in the contract was unenforceable. And then the question is, is there any part of, you know, is the entire arbitration set aside? And what I'm saying is that initial decision is wrong, And therefore, you don't have to worry about severability. And the reason why it's wrong is because it's their burden to show something in the Federal Arbitration Act that's that precludes enforcement of this provision. Section 9 doesn't get you there. Section 10 wouldn't get you why, there because why, it's it, not — Remind
4: me why Section 9 doesn't get you there. It's because — Because you, say if, because, you say, because of the if clause. If the right, parties of the if party. in their agreement have agreed that a judgment of the Court shall be entered upon the award made pursuant
1: to — but they have agreed to that, haven't they? Well, no but, — The but question it, is simply — Subject know, to the condition that the District Court would make a determination that there was no error in law. And that—I mean—that's you know—they—they they, they had. I mean, it's fascinating why, why if you look is, at,
4: why is that condition excluded from the if clause, but all of the other conditions that are set forth in ten are not excluded from the if clause. I mean, it seems to me the the if clause must. No, embrace, all the if clauses embrace any conditions.
1: Right, but the point is, if 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 all you do is agree to an arbitration, then section nine and section ten apply directly. But if you agree to an arbitration that is subject to legal error review, okay, then the if clause doesn't prevent you from being allowed to have that portion uh, 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 enforced, Your Honor. If you agree on
6: condition and the conditions are satisfied, are you saying that the district court must enforce under Section 9, or are you saying that enforcement would be under some other authority? I
1: think the enforcement would be under the existing authority that the District Court had in this particular case, because this was a case that was pending before the District Court, under diversity jurisdiction, seeking to enforce the lease agreement, and we have a final decision from the arbitrator. The judge has now made a decision that that is wrong as a matter of law and has enforced the lease in a particular way. And so the question is, is that judgment of the District Court subject to challenge and our answer to that is no. There's nothing in the Federal Arbitration Act that prevents the district judge from doing precisely well, not, what it is. I'm does.
3: not sure why you have to give the answer you just gave to Justice Alito if what you told Justice Scalia is correct, that the if clause includes the condition uh, that the court reviewed for issues of, for errors of law.
1: I'm not sure there's any inconsistency between those two things, to those two statements. Well, Jesus I thought
3: you were in. arguing, Justice Scalia, that Section 9 works, because you can interpret the if clause that way. Right. But now that you're telling Justice Scalia, oh, well, it's a different action. We've got the action here anyway.
1: Right. Well, all I'm saying is that we can win on either theory. But my whole point here has been... Section 9 doesn't prevent us from being able to do this. Section 10 is not an exhaustive list, and therefore we're allowed to add to Section 10. And at the end of the day, regardless, you ought to end, interpret this under Section 2, consistent with the intent of the parties to ensure that we get what we want. The one point I did want to make about how all of this operates is, you know, in the relationship between the courts and the arbitrator, it seems to me there's probably no more important issue than who decides whether something is arbitrable. And yet this Court held quite clearly in in First Options that even though the statute says it's the arbitrator, I mean that it's the Court, it can be made the arbitrator by the parties. Thank you, Your Honor.
0: Thank you, Mr. Phillips. The case is submitted.